Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our podcast today will be a little different. Because the Alabama Historical Association postponed its 2020 convention, Secretary Mark Wilson has arranged video panel discussions about the future of Alabama history shown live on Facebook. The AHA recorded these sessions, and to reach a larger audience, we are proud to present them as edited audio in the Alabama History Podcast. afternoon and welcome. I am Mark Wilson, Secretary of the Alabama Historical Association and Director of the Caroline Marshall Drawn Center for the Arts and Humanities in the College of Liberal Arts at Auburn University. We began this series of conversations, 2020 and the future of Alabama history, as an opportunity for reflection on the study and practice of history as it relates to the long-term effects of racism, slavery, and segregation. If we are in a moment of racial reckoning, however you might define or describe that, what positive impact will this moment have on future historical writing and interpretation? We are delighted to have Dr. Donna Baker and Dr. Sherry Williams with us today to discuss genealogists going beyond kin. Dr. Donna Baker is the director of Alabama Heritage Magazine at the University of Alabama. She has a PhD in history and has authored three books and co-edited a fourth. In recent years, genealogy has become a key part of her career. She is the president of the Alabama Genealogical Society. With Frazine Taylor, she co-founded the Beyond Kin Project in 2016 and has recently launched the blog Geno History on Purpose, which blends her interest in history and genealogy. Welcome, Dr. Donna Baker. Thanks, Mark. Thanks to the AHA also for giving Sherry and I this chance to talk about something that we both feel a passion for. I want to start by just mentioning the word beyond kin, the phrase beyond kin, and what it means. In genealogy, we're usually doing research on our genetic kin or our kin by marriage. And Frazine and I coined that phrase beyond kin when we were dealing with how to go bigger in your research to include the people that were often closer and more integrally connected to your ancestors than their own genetic kin. And particularly in the cases of enslaved ancestors, they were living together with people who were not their genetic kin and had an intimate knowledge of each other that was just not anything that those of us who grew up in 1960s in Birmingham, like I did, would have begun to understand. So to understand our ancestors, we need to look beyond kin. So that's where that phrase came from. I'm going to go back a little bit in my story to talk about how I got to this place because genealogy, I became passionate about in the 1980s. I was living in Fort Wayne, Indiana, far away from family. So when I heard about something called family history and they were doing free training at the Fort Wayne Library, I decided to go and try it and became hooked like many people do. It's a very addictive 
hobby or that many times we won't even call it a hobby very long because it becomes so much a passion. I did that for a long time and it uh, led to my interest in history, which became my career. I got a PhD in history. Then almost as soon as I had my diploma, I pulled back out the genealogy and have been melding those two ever since. The thing that began me on this path toward beyond Ken, thinking of beyond Ken, was when I got my DNA done before five years ago and discovered that I had African ancestors. That was a great surprise to me. And it was exciting to me because it was about the most interesting thing about my family story I'd ever heard. I began to want to find my African ancestors, but that's when I really realized how hard that is to do. About that same time, Dr. Susan Reynolds and I at Alabama at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute were doing a genealogy class, and we had to figure out who would teach African-American genealogy. Neither of us had done it before. So Susan drew the short straw and had to go do the study on how to do it really quick. She had to do a 20-minute segment with just very little time to prepare, and she did a great job. And I'm sitting in the class listening to her talking about her own ancestors, and she put a bill of sale up on the exhibit. It was where it got real to me that her ancestors have the bill of sale. So the descendants of the woman being sold don't have it. And it just became something that wouldn't leave me alone, that we have the records. I had known that, Frazine and I talked about that before, but that's where it got really real, that the ones who might be able to do the research are the descendants of the slaveholders. I got excited about that idea and I was going to blog about it, but I wanted to talk to Frazine about it first because I didn't want to be overstepping my bounds. I didn't want to be doing something that someone would want to do themselves. She was excited about the idea of let's see what we can do about getting the descendants of slaveholders to actually think about documenting the whole group, the white and the black members of a you know, slaveholding institution, whether it's a plantation, farm, school, wherever people were gathered, owned as a group. I started trying to figure out how to do it with genealogy software. As everybody listening who's ever tried to do African-American genealogy into the slaveholding era with our software, you need names. So we had to figure out what do you do when you have no name, when you might just have a description as you do in the census records. So we began to figure out how to basically do a hack of software that's available and document people whose names may be changing, people whose names may be incomplete, or people who may just be described and not named at all. Both of us are so busy, we can't do a lot with it, but we wanted to just put it out there for people to find. So we created the Beyond Kin project. And you can find that online, beyondkin.org. It describes the project. It describes how to document your ancestors. If you do it, make sure you go to the forum because that's where everybody discusses how they're doing it, the problems they're encountering, how they're working through those. It was suddenly just so exciting to me that we could do something like this, that we could actually do something that in a small way gives back. But what I wasn't expecting as I began to document my own ancestors' enslaved populations was what it was going to do to me. Not only did it enlighten me in many ways about what my ancestors, what was going through their minds, their lives, how they were making decisions about economics and things like that. 
it it began to create friendships for me with people like Phrasing Taylor, who had been my colleague for years, but became my friend in the process. So it became something that gave more to me than I, I was ever giving back. So that's what Beyond Kin is. That's how I got involved in it. And I'm going to turn it back over to Mark. We can hear from Sherry. Thank you, Donna. We are very happy to have Dr. Sherry Williams with us, who specializes in U.S. history. She recently defended her dissertation last month, as a matter of fact, which focuses on rural women and girls who participated in cooperative extension programs from the 1920s to the 1980s. She incorporated genealogy into her research methodology to establish kinship as a central theme of that work. She spent the past 22 years researching her own maternal lineage in Alabama and paternal lineage in Georgia. During this program, right now, she will discuss the challenges of researching her ancestors past the 1870 census due to a lack of documentation about their lives as enslaved people and the opportunities to make meaningful connections with other researchers when such documentation is made available. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you for having me today. This is an exciting topic. And like Donna, I would like to address the main concepts of the program today beyond Ken. And also the term genohistory was mentioned earlier by telling you my story and talking about my personal experience. I think the thing that capsulizes genohistory or that concept of bringing together genealogical research methods and historical research methods was my experience when I first went to the southern part of Macon County. The communities that my mother's people are associated with are Creek Stand and Warrior Stand and Borumville. I heard my grandmother talk about these places as a young person, but never really developed the curiosity to actually go there until I was a little bit older. The first time I set foot in Creek Stand, by that time, I had been researching my family tree for a while and seeing the place, it sparked something in me. And I didn't know to call it at the time historical integrity because it hasn't changed a lot over the years. And so that piqued a curiosity in me to want to know more than just names and birth dates and who married who and the things that you can find in census records and vital records to understand the context of my ancestors' existence. And so that eventually led to learning about the history of the area and that the federal road that allowed for the populating and settlement of Alabama ran right through these communities that my ancestors lived in. And one thing led to another, and I uh, developed an interest in historic preservation, established the Ridge-Macon County Archaeology Project in the south part of the county, and eventually went on to pursue a PhD. So all of that came from this idea of genome history. So it's very powerful, and I'm so happy that we're talking about that today. And then as far as the, the term beyond kin, it, it has a couple of implications for me. One is personal in that, again, it relates to this idea. You can say beyond kin is like looking at the history and the context of your ancestors' existence. But then it also speaks to, like Donna said, this idea of African-American researchers breaking what they call the 1870 census barrier. The 1870 census, of course, was the first federal census that enumerated African-Americans by name. 
And prior to that, they showed up on slave schedules only by their sex, their age, and that was pretty much it with no names. So I realized that at some point I was going to have to look into the ancestry of possible slaveholders. It's this idea of being willing to cross over your research. I'll talk about how that works both ways in just a moment, but that's what I realized I had to do. To talk more about the idea of beyond kin and this possible collaborations between African-American and white genealogists, I'll give you a story about one branch of my family's. In 2009, I had been into the research for about 11 years and had traced a branch of my mom's tree back to 1870, and this was her Ellison family line. We were planning a family reunion, and I wanted to compile a history, and I was looking for resources to help me create at least a plausible narrative about how my ancestors, Isom and Clara Ellison, ended up in Macon County. I had narrowed down some possibilities for slave owners, and I contacted a person who was descended from or related to by marriage this possible slaveholder, and she was wonderful in her response. And I'd like to share a couple of things from her email to me in 2009. One thing I had noticed about my Ellisons was that they named children the same names from generation to generation. So to read this from her was just quite enlightening, but she said that of her ancestors, there were a lot of cousins marrying cousins, going to war together, and related families migrating together. I'm always amazed to find that today they are still naming their children after their ancestors. So that one sentence in and of itself, I thought, and Donna talked about this inherently, the institution of slavery put Blacks and whites in close proximity and there were influences across those lines. And to see that this naming after ancestors was a thing in the white Ellison family and in the black Ellison family. She shared other information with me that was very helpful. So the implications of going beyond kin and being intentional and deliberate as researchers, you know, African-American researchers, we really don't have a choice when we want to go past that 1870 census period, you're going to have to start researching the ancestry and records and so on and so forth of possible slaveholders, or if you identify the slaveholder, you're going to cross over. But what I hope that this conversation encourages people to do is to be intentional and to be willing to do the crossover. For the African-American researcher, that's a given. It's not a non-negotiable and any type of diaries or letters or other types of documents that name enslaved people, if people that have those records in their possession are willing to share them with a genealogical society or an archive, that's going to benefit some African-American researcher, just as this woman's response in her email and her willingness to share information benefited me. Thank you. Thanks to both of you for those great opening statements. Whom should they contact first to so that these documents can become a part of the public record and available? Love to start with you, Donna. I've also seen some situations where when a person encounters slavery in their ancestry, they shut off that line. They don't want to research it anymore or they destroy records that mention it. 
I just beg, I beg, please don't let anything cause you to let go of those records and the opportunity for those who might learn from them. It's amazing to me how quickly our world has changed because my mother's generation would have been horrified for me to tell the world that my DNA was African and for me to be proud of that. The world has changed so much in such a short time that I'm excited about that. And when I told my nieces and nephews, they thought it was the coolest thing that now they were finally interested in their family history because they had African heritage. So our world is changing fast. And so I hope that anyone who is still feeling some of that old fear and that old angst will give yourself patience with the world. I hope we won't, any of us, judge our own value or the value of our family by what our ancestors did. We need to judge what we're doing now. And one of the things you can do now is to trace your family's story writ large, do the, the full story, and get wherever you have a mention of an enslaved person, even if it's just a description that says that my Black nurse took care of me today and she has two children, anything like that you might be the secret that helps an African-American family find their ancestry. So I beg, do not ever destroy and do everything you can to make sure anything you have like that is preserved. You can take it to archives. You can go to beyondkin.org's forum, take a scan and put it online. There are a growing number of places that you can put it, but whatever you do, please don't destroy something that we cannot replace. Just a name, a first name can solve so many problems. Let the world grow up in this, and I think that we rapidly are. So, Sherry, what are your thoughts? I'd like to piggyback on what you said as far as the emotional part of this and finding out that you have some connection that you weren't aware of to enslaved people. It's interesting to me to learn that there is some reluctance on the part of white researchers when they come across this information. But what I want to emphasize is that it's the reluctance is and the hesitancy is also there on the other side. An example, you spoke of DNA earlier. I've done my DNA on Ancestry.com, not so much on my mother's side of the family, but on my father's side, where my ancestors are from Georgia. I have second, third, fourth, sixth cousin relationships with whites and their family trees have the surnames that I'm familiar with. But I always take a deep breath, you know, when I'm, should I message this person? Should I contact them? Because there's an anxiety there that they're either number one, not going to respond. And if they don't, then it's like, how do I interpret that silence? Are they rejecting? Are they not acknowledging? Are they denying? And so it's refreshing to hear the encouragement from you. You know, genealogists, we all share a passion for finding family. And if that is the common thread, then that should propel us to be able to want to help someone else. And there's that idea of beyond kin again, to find their ancestors. You talked about being able to bring the document or record to the attention of an archivist or a person who belongs to a historical society so that it's accessible to other researchers. Thanks for that from both of you. 
We do have a question from Roseanne Kent. Instead of tracing one family history, they are attempting to track multiple families who are connected by the Georgia Gold Rush. We have transcribed the 1850 slave census, 1867 reconstruction voter registration, and 1870 census. So we have sources for many families. How can we create a tree using beyond kin? There's no one home person. Or should we just write family profiles with sources cited? I wouldn't worry too much about the home person. You can just choose one, then work out from there. There can be something very cool about doing trees where you're interlinking families. I assume that you're talking about the gold rush. You're doing a lot of families that are not necessarily connected, but they're intermarrying. That kind of thing can be interesting. And I like the idea of you doing them in one tree where you are connecting people. It's something I've been curious about doing also. I haven't tried it, but I think that if these people are intermarrying with each other, then using a tree like that could be very valuable for helping people see the interconnections and how often the marriages, your, your families are becoming all tied together. I think if you're doing a community where you're looking at families and how they start to tie together, it really tells you something about what life was like. If they're living close together, eventually they're all related. So being able to do the lines between them on a tree could be really interesting. Now, I'm not sure you need the beyond kin to do it. If they're working together, that can be your beyond kin because orphans living together in an orphanage could be a beyond kin project. Soldiers that go to war together could be a beyond kin project. So if you're looking to connect them by the fact that they're working in a gold field together, uh, yeah, using the Beyond Kin project could work for that. Thanks for that, Sherry. Any thoughts? No, I, I think Donna covered it. And I have visited the Beyond Kin's website and Donna's blog and uh, am really anxious to start using some of those tools myself. So, Hey, Sherry, I have Ellison's in my line. So oh, oh great. We may, we may end up with our own little Beyond Kin project here. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> Oh, you genealogists are always working, that's for sure. And we're all related. <laughs> we're all related. And I think you illustrate well that genealogy can be a civic enterprise in the sense that you are bringing people in the community together who did not know that they had connections. And so building community in the process. What's your hope for the future related to that subject? What do we need to be doing to further that kind of work? that brings people in communities or across the nation or outside together because they realize that they have connections. What, what are some thoughts on the future? What would you like to see happen? Well, that's a hard one. I will say that was a goal of mine in writing my dissertation. Kinship was a central theme of that. And speaking to what I said earlier about my ancestors in Macon County, it was quite eye-opening to realize the importance of kinship in early migration and settlement of this country. In other words, kinship groups moved together. And one group from a community, let's say from Virginia, settled in Alabama, others followed them. And so that poses an opportunity to understand history through a lens of kinship. There are scholars that have explored that. But with my dissertation, kinship was the central theme in establishing how important the cooperative extension programs were to community development and also for the recruitment part of bringing women and girls into those programs. 
they joined because aunt so-and-so joined or mom joined, mothers who were in home demonstration clubs and daughters who were in 4-H. What I'm hoping and what I'm seeing as a historian is that there are scholars who are more and more relying on genealogical tools to ask questions, which gets research going, and then to continue to use those tools to answer those questions. I am excited about that happening, and I think it we'll see more and more of it as time goes on. What I'm hoping is that we are encouraging people to share records because that's only going to propel this farther and make it possible for genealogists and academic researchers to use methods and expand our knowledge. I've been noticing more and more sites showing up on the web that are making records available. That is so critical because much as I love doing a Beyond Kin project for my family that might help the descendants of those that they enslaved, nothing is better than them being able to find the records in repositories. It seems like every two or three days I'm seeing another site where the runaway slave ads are being documented. We're starting to recognize that even the slightest mention of a name matters and having a place for people to put that. That's one thing in the future that I want to see. And as Sherry mentioned also, this connection with history and genealogy and beginning to recognize the vital importance of using the family history tools. Sherry went into genealogy before she finished her dissertation. I had put it aside. And so after I finished my dissertation, after eight years in graduate school, then I went back into genealogy and started learning the new tools that had changed in the 20 years I'd been away amazing how much you can learn and do with genealogical sources. And I was regretting so much that I had not incorporated that when I was in graduate school, as Sherry did. So I hope we'll start to see that happening in our history programs that will recognize what they've got with genealogy. Here's a question. Where can a researcher find documents of name changed for former enslaved persons? Sherry? Well, I'm not sure if I'll be able to answer the question fully because I had that experience. On my dad's side, I was looking for a surname of Sanders, and I knew the earliest known ancestors, first name and all of the wife's name and all of the children, and couldn't find them on the 1870 census where I knew for sure they, the county and state they lived in. I said, okay, well, I'm just going to have to go through this census page by page. <laughs> And I did and found them, but their last name was Adams in 1870. So by 1880, I believe, or at least 1900, they were Sanders. I have not been able to determine why that name change occurred or if there is a legal record for it. And I think that it would be like finding a needle in a haystack because in that time frame, those kinds of uh, legal records for African-Americans didn't exist. I mean, I'm assuming you would have to go to the courthouse and pay a fee and do all of those things. In the rural setting, especially, I'm not sure that those kinds of opportunities were accessible. So I'm interested to hear your take, Donna, because I, I don't I, I also uh, don't have a lot of expertise in this. I can tell you that when I have seen people successfully find the name change, it usually was tied to other family members. They were able to find the other family members who had a consistent 
name. And then by looking at their records, eventually realized that, you know, say the father's name was different, but his age was the same. And he appeared to have been the same father in both cases. So it's usually having to work the family around the person whose name has changed to get lucky enough to find sufficient evidence. But you're still, you're not likely to find a legal record where they legally said, I'm going to change my name. You're going to find it incidentally. So always work around the problem, work around it with family, with neighbors, with everything until something starts to gel, if you get lucky. One thing I'll add to my explanation is that my brother's Y DNA results helped me come up with a speculative answer, but I think it's a reasonably intelligent kind of conclusion. His Y DNA connects to many European men with the surname Sanders. So I think our Sanders ancestor just went back to the surname of the person that he descended from. I do have some experience with that on last names with my family, with an adopted ancestor. My maiden name is Cox. And so we were Coxes up to this man, but we couldn't find his father anywhere. But I had my uncle who was son of a son of a son of a son of a son, which you have to be for Y-DNA. He did his DNA and we saw names Taylor and Winchester, and there were Winchester boys living three doors down from the house. And we began to find DNA matching us with them. So we were able to use Y-DNA on a last name. So that can be helpful. I'm going to put up a couple of comments that uh, Mike Fitzgerald mentions on name changes. I think you can look for a bunch of family first names, even without a last name present. You might be able to have them come up in a search, especially if the dates match. And Denise Allen, I thought y'all would enjoy seeing this comment. You know you're a genealogist when you do the page-by-page read of a census to find people. Definite rite of passage. And I'm sure a lot of the folks watching this program could fill in the blanks. You know you're a genealogist when uh, (laughs) easily. And you probably have some some wonderful stories about that. But I do have a question for you. Most of the folks, at least in my experience, that time and the energy and the reflective moment in their life to do this kind of work are generally retired. Maybe have more time on their hands, maybe thinking about the connections and trying to understand the past. But we get quite excited when we run across anyone who's young and really interested in this. So what advice do you have for helping young people get connected to this world and finding interest? How do we get young people interested in this kind of work? First of all, that get their DNA done. It can be intriguing to start to find out where your people came from. I mean, with me, it wouldn't have occurred to me to want to read African history. But now that I am from Senegal, uh, apparently I, I want to read a history that I had not been interested in before. So the DNA can be helpful. But kids are very interested in technology. So there are so many technological options that are available that weren't before. My key thing for the young ones is go to the old ones in your family and get them to tell you the stories and write them down and record them because you are going to find a gold mine. And sometimes you're going to find a lot of stuff that isn't true. But that can be also fun and interesting. So make sure that while you still have the old folks with you in your life, that you get everything you can get them to tell you about the old people they remember in their life. I would add to that by saying that I would encourage the old people (laughs) to be intentional about sharing those stories with young people. And the reason I say that, again, I can tell you a quick story. 
I used to live in Georgia. And at that point, I lived there with first cousins and my brother who still lives there. And we got together all the time and we had our children together. And so we were really happy. We thought, oh, these cousins are getting to know each other. And then we learned quite shockingly that one of the children didn't realize my brother and I were brother and sister. So things that you take for granted that children understand and know about their families. As old people <laughs> have to take the initiative not to wait always for the kids to ask the questions, but to be willing to share the information with them. And if they're not interested, sit down and write the story anyway. They will be someday. Make sure they're going to get it someday. Well stated. A couple of comments. Mike Fitzgerald meant to say on Ancestry.com, try looking at the 1870 and 1880 censuses when most of the name changes would have occurred. When I mentioned earlier that you wanted to work around the family, if a name is changed, look for the other family members. That Looking at the 1870 versus 1880 census could be a great way to do that because you're seeing this whole family, they're all got the same ages, but one person's got a different name, though they have the same age as the other name. Comparing those censuses is a great way to find where somebody might have changed the name. Thanks for that. We appreciate it. And thanks for everyone for your comments and questions. In closing, I'll just ask if you have any final thoughts on this topic of using genealogy to make connections that haven't been there, creating community where community might not have been found, or a way to, to lead us into the future that we all want to live in, where all history is accounted for, and then where all mysteries are solved, and that we try to understand the present by a good investigation of the past as well. Any closing comments? I'd like to go back to a theme that you mentioned in the introduction to the program about racial reconciliation and just kind of reiterate what a wonderful opportunity genealogy presents for that to take place, even if it's on a micro level, you know, from one person to the next. I say that because a family is a bedrock institution in America. But I think that because of marginalization and racism, the Black family unit has kind of been othered. This presents the opportunity for racial reconciliation when you are willing to cross over and do the research and share because you learn about experiences. For me personally, it was learning that there was more to my enslaved ancestors once they became free than that legacy of slavery. I learned how they built communities and churches and schools and contributed to those institutions just to break down this idea that the, the Black family unit is something different and other than the American family units. The genealogy and beyond kin presents a wonderful opportunity to break through those stereotypes and myths and barriers about the Black family. I'll say it. Thanks, Don. I encourage everybody to use this opportunity if you begin to go beyond Ken and your genealogy to make friends with people that you didn't think you had anything in common with before. Because I grew up in a little white bubble and you don't recognize that while you're sitting in the room together, you still are in your bubble. But the day I met Sherry, I mentioned this to her a few weeks ago. Frazine had invited me to speak at a conference that she was hosting and I walked into a room for the first time in my life, I was the ethnic minority in my entire life. And I suddenly felt myself like, oh, I don't want any eyes on me. And I was sitting in the back by myself. I ended up having lunch with Sherry. 
and met her and we got to talk to each other and have that in common and and become uh you know uh two women who can be friends with each other and possibly are related now that you mentioned the allisons i encourage us all to use this opportunity to begin to see the humanity in each other the the shared history because we do share one our ancestors were living in the same houses together if they weren't actually genetically kin so it's a great chance for us to break the bubble and find each other it's a wonderful thing when we do we have enjoyed spending time with you today to hear these compelling stories that I think have offered up a lot of opportunities for folks, as you can see in the comments, and we really appreciate spending time with you today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.